everyone. Welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Tuesday, December 27th. Amanda Borshel-Dan here with our Knesset correspondent, Carrie Keller-Lynn, and environment reporter, Sue Sirks. Hello to you both and happy post-Hanukkah. Good morning. Hi, happy post-Hanukkah, happy post-Christmas, happy early New Year. <laughs> All of it. We have a lot to discuss, including incoming Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's ticking clock towards swearing in the new government and what lingering pieces of legislation are left to deal with. Sue will discuss hens that lay only female chicks and solar panels on the moon. Yes, the moon. But first, a short break. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. And we're back. Listeners, before we dive in, I want to strongly recommend our new podcast miniseries called Israel's Judiciary, Reform or Ruin. Its eight episodes are a nuanced and varied look at looming legislation, including a potential override clause that could just shift the face of Israel's courts. You can find Israel's Judiciary, Reform or Ruin anywhere you find your podcasts. Now, Carrie, turning to you, yesterday, new speaker of the Knesset, Yariv Levine, made an announcement. What was it? Uh, Levin made two announcements, actually, it turns out. One was that uh, Benjamin Netanyahu has successfully announced that he can form a government, something that Netanyahu did last Wednesday night, but now has formally kicked off his seven-day clock for swearing in that government by having Levin announce it to Monday's plenum session. Levin also announced that he was going to quit his post as Knesset Speaker, which he sent a resignation letter for this morning, Tuesday morning, meaning that he will leave his post uh, by Thursday in time for the government to swear itself in at 11 a.m. Israel time on Thursday. This seems like very esoteric details, but it's all part of a carefully orchestrated chess, um, whereby Likud is trying to shift the positions it gives to its own party members in this run-up in the next two days to actually being able to swear in the government. Because remember, while Likud ran on a very clear block of right-wing, far-right, and ultra-Orthodox parties, two months after the election, it still hasn't sworn the government in because it's needed to divvy up resources, both among its partners, most of which has been taken care of at this point, although not fully finalized, and within the party itself. And there's some dissatisfaction within the party. People are jostling about which roles they will or won't get. And Levin is about to open um, this very competitive role uh, for another contest, which we're likely to see in the run-up to 
Thursday's big swear-in. Now, staying with you, Carrie, there's another piece that is uh, in the works before the swear-in. And we've talked about several times about the four pieces of legislation that Netanyahu's (laughs) coalition partners and Likud wanted to pass before Thursday's swearing-in. Now, if I'm not mistaken, two have indeed passed and two are still in the works. Uh, Fill us in here. I am not sure on the details, actually. Right. So the four compressed into three um, because two of the four changes were the change to a to a single bill. So they, they rolled up into one. The Likud uh, desired measure was um, in order to make it harder for rebel MKs to pull off from their Knesset factions. That passed last week. Uh, the second piece of legislation passed at 7 a.m. this morning after an all-night filibuster. And that was that compressed piece of legislation that actually changes one of Israel's quasi-constitutional basic laws to make the fitness standards for becoming a minister a little bit more relaxed, um, as well as create a permanent option for the government to appoint a second minister within each ministry. Now, these changes were very uh, directly motivated by two different things. Uh, one, religious Zionism's uh, Betzalel Smotlich, he wants to be an independent minister in the defense ministry in charge of settlement policy. So he is going to be able to do that because the government has just approved this measure despite not having, sorry, the incoming government, not yet seated, despite not having uh, directives that will clearly outline his roles. Um, and the second thing that was included in this bill was uh, making the fitness test more relaxed by saying that only a person who was convicted and sentenced to a custodial prison sentence that carries moral turpitude could not be a minister rather than just someone who was sentenced to a sentence like Shas's leader, Arya Derry, who in January received a suspended sentence for tax offenses. Uh, the question of moral tup- turpitude was not discussed because, uh, as per deal, he quit the Knesset right before his sentencing. And the idea, which was explicitly discussed back then, was that if he wanted to take up another senior position in government, he would have to have a discussion about moral turpitude in front of the Central Elections Committee. This new change to law obviates that need. Derry does not need to go through that process. He can be a minister on Thursday. And is that all the legislation that needs to pass? And there's one bill left. <laughs> it is, uh, it's been dubbed the Bengvir bill uh, for Otsma Yudicher, Itmar Bengvir, who is the incoming national security minister, which is basically a police minister with some expanded powers. This bill is to give him some of those expanded powers. It's been watered down a bit after fierce criticism from uh, the attorney general's office, from the police commissioner, from past police commissioners. Bengvir will still uh, succeed in passing that he as minister can set general policy as well as influence investigations policy with weigh-in from the commissioner and the attorney general. He will also establish that the government has authority over the police, which, which you know, although the government does express authority, the police is independent and has not been written in law uh, in the police regulations to date. He did not succeed in bringing changes to say that he is uh, preeminent over the police commissioner, as well as that he gets to independently decide things about investigations policy and who the police will bring to prosecution. Those changes, he says, he's leaving on the table for a later date. This bill is expected to come to the floor today, and that would wrap up the uh, incoming coalition's legislative demand package before it's swear-in, which again, expected Thursday. And if something happens, must happen by next Monday, January 2nd. Okay, that's so much information. I just want to uh, revisit a little bit the piece of legislation that gave Smotrich the ability to be an independent minister within a ministry that already has a minister. What kind of blowback or response has this particular aspect been uh, been receiving? 
Right. So this the legislation itself is rather, quote, innocuous in the sense that it's just the mechanism that was approved in a, in a permanent way. What is concerning people are the coalition agreements that indicate the intention behind creating this mechanism. People are saying that Smotrich, who's a staunch settlement supporter, who was actually arrested by but never charged by the Shin Bet in 2005 for allegedly planning a violent protest against Israel's uh, disengagement policy from Gaza and the Northern West Bank, will be in charge of setting um, Israel's construction for uh, West Bank settlements in Area C, um, as well as uh, enforcing uh, destruction of, quote, illegal Palestinian building. This is uh, basically creating a situation which critics say could could reach the level of de facto annexation. Um, Smotrich's appointment has also um, garnered a lot of criticism from international critics. Um, it's garnered criticism for the defense establishment. He'll have the ability to weigh in on appointing generals, something that as of now, only the IDF and in, in a rare sense, instances, the defense minister will weigh in on. Um, there are criticisms that this might be splitting the IDF's chain of command, that uh, because bus bank settlements and, and building construction policy often will slip into a security event, um, that that uh, Smotlich might have bleeding into operational concerns, whereas past ministers in the defense ministry were very clearly only dealing with uh, social issues, such as, you know, integrating uh, ultra-Orthodox soldiers into the IDF. Um, so there's a lot of concerns about what this can do for the chain of command, what this can do for security, what this can do for international relations, and what this can do on the ground in Area C, which is where about 500,000 Jewish uh, settlers live, as well as a number of Palestinians. And as you noted, he's also said to take up the finance ministry. And I just find it somewhat odd in terms of the head of a party that he's centralizing his power in himself, essentially. Why do you think this is happening? I mean, heads of parties will take as much power as they want. I think <laughs> what's interesting is that <laughs> that um, the incoming Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is enabling all of this to happen. Um, but one thing that should be said is that although Smotrich is starting in the finance ministry, he's supposed to split that role with R.A. Derry. So in about two, two and a half years, depending on how long this government serves, because there's a question about whether it will serve four or five years, um, something we'll discuss at a later date, <laughs> I'm sure. Derry, Derry is supposed to switch in, and then Smotrich will take on other ministries yet to be determined. What, what's a little bit more concerning is that Netanyahu in his negotiations has sort of done a chop suey of taking one piece out of this ministry and moving it to someone else and giving overlapping authorities. And there's concern that, that Smotrich uh, will be able to kind of also backstop some of his policies or policy pushes by holding purse strings and, and thus being able to coerce some policy uh, by holding pur purse strings. Of course, this is more analyst opinion, um, looking at what powers he will and won't have than any threats made by Smoltich himself, per se. Okay, Carrie, thank you for that. We'll get to a short break now. Shalom, dear listeners. This is Daniil Hartman. And I'm Yossi Klein Halevi. Together we host the podcast For Heaven's Sake from the Shalom Hartman Institute. These have been some of the most challenging days for me personally, for Israel, and for the Jewish people. And one of the ways in which I've gotten through this is that I found solace and meaning through discussions with my dear friend and study partner, Daniil Hartman. And I hope that the Times of Israel listeners will join us as we continue to tackle the pressing questions facing the Jewish people here at For Heaven's Sake, which has become the number one Judaism podcast. Well, Daniil, I'd also like to recommend the Identity Crisis podcast hosted by our colleague and friend Yehuda Kurtzer. It's a series of fantastic conversations with leading figures in Jewish life, thought, and culture. 
You know, for decades, the Hartman Institute has been a preeminent destination for Jewish ideas and learning. Now you can access Hartman Ideas on these chart-topping podcasts at shalomhartman.org forward slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll privilege to help guide you through these challenging and even unsettling times. And we're back. Sue, thanks so much for joining us on this suitably all-female mm, podcast right. as we begin to discuss our next item, right? You recently wrote about how Israeli scientists are trying to revolutionize the egg industry and have produced a gaggle of hens that are the first in the world to lay eggs that only produce females. I think you wrote that they're all called Golda. Is that uh, some kind of nod to our first female prime minister? Apparently not. Apparently that's uh, serendipitous. It's because of their gold colour. <laughs> but it is a new a new gold variety of hen. I should also say that I was corrected immediately for saying a gaggle of hens because a gaggle is a gaggle of geese. But moving on swiftly, um, I don't know how many people know that when they buy and eat their eggs, however they eat them, the cost is the lives of 7 billion male chicks across the world who are destroyed every year, gassed, suffocated, or ground up live because the industry regards them as waste. It's a diff different kind of um, creature that produces chicken for eating. You know, they're all, they've all kind of been selected for, for, for different purposes. So, seven billion a year. Now, the um, a team at the, the Volcani Center the Israeli Agriculture Research Organization has been working for seven years on trying to solve this problem and also to cut costs for the farmers or, you know, the cut costs in the egg industry because to sort out the males and destroy them costs a lot of money. So it was announced in the last few weeks that the team had its breakthrough and produced a number of hens that can only lay female chicks. And I'm going to explain how, but I have to read it because I was never very good at my Gregor Mendel in school. So roosters carry the Z chromosome. Hens carry the Z for the males and the W for the females. If you get two Zs, a male chick is born. If you get a W and a Z, a female chick is born. So what the research team discovered was a way to genetically edit the hen's Z chromosome, male one, so the eggs carrying male embryos will not develop. They'll stop developing at uh, an early stage and they won't hatch. It's an absolutely massive breakthrough. What actually happens is that the golder hens will be kept by the breeders because the golder hens lay the female chicks and it's the female chicks that lay the unfertilized what are called table eggs, the eggs that we eat. So um, yeah, fantastic story. It, it is a fantastic story and kind of in the realm of science fiction. Now, the next story that I'd like you to briefly update us on is also about waste. And there's this new company called Opa that is uh, providing 100% recyclable takeout bowls in Tel Aviv. Tell us really quickly about that. Yeah, so that's going to expand. Basically, it's a startup that gives you, it's working with uh, takeout companies like Walt, hopefully soon, Tenbis, with a lot of restaurants, uh, so that when you order a takeout, you will be able to order the takeout in multi-use bowls, which are totally recyclable. Um, they're delivered, you then have to return, I mean, it's at a very, very early stage, that you then have to return the bowl to a collection point, which might be 
um, a restaurant or soon they're going to put collection points in uh, by stores. They're also going into big office blocks and putting the collection points in the office blocks. The, the bowls are then collected. They're washed in very strong uh, industrial dishwashers and they're returned to the restaurants. Now, the more this grows and it will grow, and they're also now looking at the kosher element, how to ensure that these bowls are uh, uh, appropriate um, for milk and meat and washed separately. Uh, once these once this covers the country, it should be very easy to return the bowls. And uh, they're hoping to, you know, cover Israel and then go forth into Europe. And maybe to the moon, because our final story talks about space, the final frontier. A U.S.-born Israeli academic has designed a conceptual plan to rig the moon with solar panels. So why in the world did Emeritus Professor Jeffrey Gordon from Ben Gurion University turn to this particular problem? If you'll remember, NASA sent an unmanned mission to the moon last month. In two years, this is called Artemis, in two years, it's planning to fly astronauts around the moon. And if all goes to plan, in 2025, there'll be the first crewed lunar landing since Apollo 17 in 1972. By the middle of the next decade, NASA is hoping to populate its first permanent base camp for rotating research teams. Now, one of the challenges will be to find water, and there is water on the moon in different states. Another challenge is how best to mine and separate the metals and the oxygen that are bound together as metal oxides in, it's not really soil, it's called regolith, it's like stony deposits that cover the surface of the moon and how to generate the energy to power that process. There is an Israeli company called the Helios Project, which we have covered, uh, which is developing a way to mine the oxygen um, from the uh, from the regolith. And they turned to Professor Gordon a couple of years ago to look at how that process might be powered so he's a scientist. He's an emeritus professor, as you say. He went through all the literature. He consulted people at NASA. And he designed uh, a conceptual plan for a belt of solar panels, which will be quite close to one of the poles uh, and will be connected to oxygen-producing factories by relatively short transmission lines. And what he says, you know, one of the things which I was surprised to hear uh, was that NASA is basically pushing um, nuclear power on the moon, nuclear like nuclear fission reactors, uh, basically because NASA's priority is to have something that is totally reliable. What Jeffrey Gordon says is that his design would require six times less mass than the best nuclear option to provide the same amount of uh, electricity, and that the proposal would provide uninterrupted electricity for these plants 100% of the time, because a sufficient number of panels will be always exposed to the sun. And he published these, uh, these ideas in an academic journal called Renewable Energy, and he was subsequently invited to lecture at NASA's Glenn Research Center in Cleveland, Ohio. Now, we're looking very, very far into the future because for the immediate base camp, which will be very small, NASA is looking at prototypes of tiny little solar installations and, 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 and a nuclear thingy as well. But we are, we are talking further into the future. Now, in the meantime, the Helios project is planning to fly its oxygen producing machine to the moon in uh, 2025 to demonstrate proof of concept. So uh, so things are moving. 
But as I said to you before, a tweet came up today on my phone from William Shatner, famous from uh, Star Trek, uh, saying that, you know, he'd spent his life dealing with space. And when he finally got into, got out of Earth on some kind of vessel, orbited Earth, and went into the dark, cold, as he explained it, this dead, dark space, and looked at our tiny little Earth, he realized just how precious it is. And, you know, maybe that's what we should be looking at, rather than spending so much money on getting to the moon and going to Mars, which is also NASA's plan. So to infinity and beyond or, or not? I mean, maybe yes, maybe no. Okay. Sue, Carrie, thank you so much for joining me today. Pleasure. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. And thanks to our producer, Gilad Brownstein, and to Gili Amar for this out-of-this-world music. You can find us daily wherever you find your podcasts. And on our mothership, timesofisrael.com. Like what you hear? Consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. And be sure to check out our weekly feature, Times Will Tell, released every Friday. Until next time, Shalom. Shalom.